Hello, church. I'm not supposed to be here. I was supposed to go back to Ghana with my family on Monday. That was the original plan, but we are living in some very interesting times. In fact, I think Africa misses me so much. I hear on the news there's a giant dust storm from Africa coming over here. And uh, yeah, Africa's just calling us, <laughs> and we want to get back there soon. Um, but God has us here for a reason. Mike had asked me to preach um, back in April before the pandemic, and I had picked aside the scripture and the message that I um, felt the Lord called me to share. And then April got postponed, and now I'm here today after I'm supposed to be in Africa. But the message, I think, is, is actually perfect uh, for this time. What we're going to see in God's Word today is ideal for the, these very interesting times. So I want to start with a, a brief story. Um, I like to tell, as I often do, a story from Africa. Um, a few years back, on one of my assignments, I was in the northeastern corner of Uganda in East Africa. And I was working with uh, some of our missionaries who were there, your missionaries, IMB missionaries, who were working among the Karamajong people. Now, the Karamajong people, they're a, they're a warrior people, uh, similar to the Maasai. They're in that same area. And they live this semi-nomadic lifestyle of raising um, sheep and cattle and goats, and they graze them across the countryside. And, and our missionaries have been there for many years, um, evangelizing and discipling and training church leaders. And so my assignment was to document the work the missionaries are doing, and also to kind of capture the lifestyle and the culture of the Karamajong. So I, I was staying with the missionaries themselves, and I wanted to actually get out and be in a home with a Karamajong person. So I asked the missionary, I said, hey, could you set it up so that maybe I could spend a night in a local home with a local family? And he said, okay, that's not a problem. And so he introduced me to this man named Simon. And Simon's a young Karamajong man. He was married, they had a newborn baby. And Simon had come to Christ and had been discipled by your missionaries and trained. And, and now this was a few years ago. He has now multiplied and trained multiple church leaders among their tribe. But at that time, he was still in training with them. And, and he said, oh, we'd be honored, William, for you to come and stay in our home. So this is perfect. So that afternoon, I went over to their house, and I had a wonderful evening with them. I ate with them. And they had this small little mud, um, mud room, that, uh, mud house with two rooms. And one room was the kitchen, and one room was the bedroom. And there's no electricity. I mean, we were just out in the middle of nowhere. And it got dark, and so it was time to go to bed. And he said, William, uh, my wife and I would like you to stay in our room and take the bed, and we will sleep in, in the kitchen on the floor, on the dirt floor. Now, in Africa, hospitality is really important. It's something I've learned over the years. And for me to tell them no would actually be offensive and rude to them because I need to give them the opportunity to be hospitable. That's so important to them. So I was just feeling terrible. Because here they are with a newborn baby, and they're sleeping on a dirt floor while I sleep on their only piece of furniture in the bedroom. So I go in the bedroom, and I lay down on the bed, and they close the little door that divides us. And they didn't have any other furniture, so they had these big bags, these plastic bags with all of their clothes in them instead of dressers and stuff. So I lay there, and it's quiet and pitch black, and I'm just feeling kind of guilty. And I hear this noise on the tin roof, this scurrying. And then I hear more scurrying. And it's like some, some creatures are up on the roof. It's like an interstate for these creatures. I'm like, okay, that's kind of loud, but I can sleep through that. And then I start hearing rustling in the plastic bags in the room with me. And so I sit up with my cell phone, and I'm shining the light, and I don't see anything. I lay back down, and then I hear the rustling again, and I shine the light again. And Simon's in the other room on the floor, and he sees the light under the door, and he calls out. He says, William, is everything okay? And I say, I say, well, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I heard something. He goes, oh, William, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. We have rats in the house. Is that a problem, William? 
And I said, well, no, you know, I'm already feeling bad enough. No, 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 it's not a problem, Simon. It's no big deal. So I lay back down there, and the, the scurrying, there's more of them rustling in those bags. And then I feel it on the sheets, the bed sheet below me. They're on the bed. And I'm laying there, and in my mind is all those, those horrible rats you've seen in the movies over the years, whether it's Lady and the Tramp or Indiana Jones, right? They're filling my mind, and I'm just terrified. And then on the headboard, I can hear them scampering on the headboard inches from my face. And I'm thinking, Lord, how am I going to sleep tonight? So to get those horrible images of bad rats out of my mind, I start thinking about all the good rats that we've got, right? We've got uh, the, the ratatouille rat. Maybe they're just running along there trying to make an omelet for me. And maybe the ones dancing down by my feet are excited because Cinderella's going to the ball. You know? So I, I kind of put out the, the horrible, terrifying rats out of my mind, and I'm able to get a few hours sleep. I wake up in the morning, and Simon, he greets me. His wife has made tea, and he says, Oh, William, I'm so sorry. Did the rats bother you last night? And I said, No, Simon, it was actually okay. I got some sleep. It was fine. And he goes, Oh, that's so good because these rats, they often bite our toes. And their teeth are like razors. And I'm thinking, Lord, thank you for not telling me that information last night. Because there's no way I would have slept it all through the night for fear of rats with razor-sharp teeth nibbling on my toes. Now, I know that hopefully none of you have this issue with rats and and with razor-sharp teeth in your home. But we do have something in common. We all have fears in our lives that we deal with at various points. And though you may not have rats, there are some common fears that, that we can all kind of, that we all share in a sense. Now, psychologists have all kinds of categories for fears and phobias and stuff, but these are three that I find that people that I know deal with and that I deal with. The fear, fear of failure, that's a fear where I'm worried about myself, whether I'm going to get embarrassed or not succeed in something, let people down. Fear of losing relationships, this is dealing with maybe intimacy or lo- losing someone you love, Right? And then the fear of the unknown. And I think in our nation right now and in the world, this is the big one. The, this virus, this invisible virus, has us afraid. And then there's so many things that have added on to that. Fear of financial stability might be something that you're struggling with. I know a lot of people are, as our economy's on this roller coaster. Or maybe, maybe it's that fear of losing a loved one. You have someone you're afraid that they'll get this sickness and die. And so these are some common fears. And the problem with fear is that fear consumes us. When you're so afraid of something, you end up in kind of a little bubble of isolation. There's you, and then there's the rats, right? The, the thing you're afraid of out there. And it, it can consume you and start to eat you away. It can, it can affect you with your health, physically, spiritually, emotionally. But the thing is, as Christians, we're not supposed to be afraid. We are told, actually, God tells us, do not be afraid, fear not. You might have actually... Um, seen on Instagram or Facebook. Sometimes there's this meme that goes around that says, uh, the Bible says, do not fear 365 times. That's enough for each day of the year. Now that's cute. It's not true. Um, (laughs) It would be nice if we had it conveniently lining up with our Roman calendar that we follow these days, right? But that's not it. But if you do search the scriptures and you count all the do not fears, do not be afraid, fear nots, you get about 120-ish that you could actually find references for. And that's amazing still. God is so serious about us not being afraid. He says it 120 times. If you've had to say something to your child 120 times, that's an issue, right? (laughs) Thankfully, God is patient with us. But he commands us that. And so what I want to do today is go into Isaiah 41, verse 10. This is my favorite fear not. And we're going to back up a few verses to get some context. We don't have time to read all 120 fear nots, so we'll just focus on this one because it's a really good one. 
Um, And let me read this to you uh, from the Scriptures. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This whole section of Isaiah is God reassuring his people that he alone is in control of human history, and it's for his glory, and it's for their benefit. That's the message he's trying to get across. And and the center point is these verses in the middle. Now, the first question we ask ourselves is, well, who is this about? It's right. It's about Israel. Anytime you look at the Old Testament, especially prophecy, you need to look at what is the context of this, who is it speaking to. And it was obvious that it said, you, O Israel. But he qualified Israel with a few things. He said, whom I have chosen, whom I gathered from the ends of the earth, and offspring of Abraham. And we know that these promises and the command apply to us because Paul said, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to his promise. So these promises and this command are for us as believers today. Because as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you are in Christ. So you're an heir to God's promises. And so that sets up the powerful promises that are in verse 10. So let's do some counting. Let's look at verse 10 and see how many promises are in there. So you start off, you got the fear not. That's the command. And it, it's repeated as be not dismayed. Some translations will say be not afraid or be not discouraged. But that command is repeated in the second line. But the five promises are, I am with you, I am your God, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, and I will strengthen you. So let's start with the first one. Let's go through each of those promises and see what those have for us. So the first one was, I am with you. Now, when my family first moved to West Africa, this was actually a fear that I had, this fear of losing relationships. Because when you move to the other side of the world and, and you're physically distant from people, your relationships are affected. We had phone calls and we had email and we would occasionally do some pixelated FaceTime calls with family and friends back home. But, but we lost that. And this is actually a reality that all of you now in this day and age, right, in this COVID era, have come to learn how to do, right, to be in relationship away from each other using Zoom calls and, and FaceTime and Skype and all these things to try to stay connected. But guess what? It's not the same, right? We were excited, actually, even though we have to wear masks and socially distance, we were excited to come back and worship together and be physically present with each other. Maybe you've got a child who's going off to college or going on and getting married, right? And, and you wonder, how's that relationship going to be after this big change? Or maybe you've got someone who's sick and dying, and you're thinking, how is my life? What, I'm going to lose this relationship. I'm afraid of this. What's my life going to look like with that person gone? Or maybe in a marriage, you have a relationship that's on the rocks, and you don't know what's going to happen if this marriage falls apart. How can you fix this? How can you keep this together? And fear wells up inside you. And that's where this promise hits home. God says, I am with you. He's ready and he's willing to be with you when you're alone and to encourage you and to comfort you because you want someone there so that you're not alone. You know, God sent Christ as the God-man. He came in, in physical form and walked on the earth nearly 2,000 years ago. And that was amazing to have God physically present and walking among and interacting with people. But when Jesus was there in physical form, if you wanted to 
interact with Jesus or, or be comforted by Jesus, you had to physically go to him or he had to come to you. That was the whole issue in John 11. Lazarus died, and two days later, Jesus showed up, and Martha said, if you had been here, dot, 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 right? You could have kept him from dying, or you could have comforted us, and, and so on. But just a few chapters later, Jesus is talking about how he's going to leave. He's physically going to leave the earth, and he says, I will ask the Father to send a comforter or a helper or an advocate. And that's the brilliance of the Holy Trinity. On Pentecost, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, came down to dwell within the believers. And that's what we have today. We have God with us all the time. This, this is a truth that has comforted God's people for millennia. You can go back to 400 AD, Patrick, the, the missionary to Ireland, known as St. Patrick, Right? Way back then, he wrote this beautiful poem. He said, or a prayer. He said, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to my right, Christ to my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, to remind us God is with us. The great church theologian, John Wesley, when he was on his dying bed in 1791, his family and friends gathered around him. And one of the women that was with him was Betsy Ritchie, and she wrote about his last moments before John Wesley died. And this is what she said. Finding we could not understand what he said, he paused a little, and then with all the remaining strength he had, he cried out, the best of all is, God is with us. Wesley knew he's losing that relationship, or his family is losing that relationship. He is leaving them, but he's reminding them, this is the best thing. God is with us. And that promise of God with us is made even better when you look at the second promise. He says, be not dismayed, for I am your God. God isn't just someone to be with you, and he's also not some impersonal being with a you know, white beard floating in a cloud. No, God says in verse 9, he said, I have chosen you, and I have not cast you off. He wants to be there with you when you're in the clutches of fear and help you to overcome that. He whispers, fear not, I am with you. And then with that voice that, that laid the foundations of the earth, he says, be not dismayed, I am your God. I created the universe. I calm the storm. I send fire down from heaven on your enemies. I am your God. Fear not. Paul, in, in uh, writing to the Romans in chapter 8, he's been talking about how God called us to himself in Christ and he just gets overwhelmed, and he ends the chapter in Romans 8.31. He ends it with, what then shall we say to these things? I think that's like the modern equivalent of the little emoji that's shrugging. You know, Paul would have used that maybe if he had that back then. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And who else would we want to be for us, right? That's where the next promise comes in. He said, I will strengthen you. Who are you going to turn to if you've, got, if you've got the creator of the universe who's offering his strength to strengthen you? That's who we want to turn to. That's who we want to lean on and not be afraid. Earlier in chapter 41 in Isaiah, um, God, through his prophet Isaiah, he actually calls out in this really biting sarcasm the nations or mankind. So at the beginning of chapter 41, the judgment of God is coming, and the nations see it. And in verse 5, it says they've seen it and they're afraid, and they, they gather together, and they're encouraging each other, hey, be strong. We can handle this. We can handle what God's got coming towards us. And then the craftsmen, the, the craftsmen and the gold layers, they start making idols. And they're making this idol to help them out, to get through this difficult time that's going to be coming. 
And they make the idol and they go, oh, it's good. This is good. And then I love it. God's, God's just making fun of them here. He says, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. We've made this great idol that's going to protect us from the coming judgment of the Lord. But let's add a few more nails just to make sure it doesn't topple over, right? I mean, that's just laughable. But that's what we do. And that's the crux of our fear of failure, right? Is we rely on ourselves too often when we're afraid to succeed in something or to do something that the Lord has called us to do. And we know that our strength is finite. And we know that our minds are not perfect like God's. And we know that our emotions are very unreliable. And that's why we're afraid of failing. But God is saying, I will strengthen you. When he calls us to a task, he will give us the strength we need to accomplish that. And we only need to take a cursory glance at the scriptures to see example after example after example, right? You got Moses, he couldn't talk, he didn't want to go to Pharaoh, God strengthened him. You got Joshua, he's got to take this land of giants, God strengthened him. You've got Samson who got literal strength. And it goes on, David and Solomon, through the scriptures. We see this promise and God fulfills it over and over by strengthening his people. But strength isn't the end all. The next promise here is that he promised help. He says, fear not, I will help you. He will give us the strength we need, and he will actively help us to conquer our fears. He'll help us not to be afraid, not to be discouraged, not to be anxious. We need only ask. If you were to ask uh, Heidi or me when we needed the Lord's help the most, we would definitely immediately say April 2015. April 2015, we were in Ghana and West Africa. We'd been there about six months or so. And I came down with a debilitating case of typhoid fever. And I mean, it was bad. It knocked me out for a month. I was in bed. Um, I lost 17 pounds in 10 days, not a diet that I recommend. It's very effective, but you don't want to do that diet. Um, the typhoid had me. Um, I had these neurological symptoms. I had tremors. I couldn't feed myself, so Heidi was feeding me in bed. She was carrying me to the bathroom to bathe me, to toilet, and she was six months pregnant the whole time. And then one night in the midst of all this, our son Trey breaks out in this very typhoid-like symptom of this rash all over his body. And so we think he has it. And then she gets news from St. Petersburg that her grandfather has just passed away. And then we get news that my younger brother in Richmond is in the ICU in critical condition. All this stuff comes at once on us in April 2015. And because of all this stress, she starts having premature contractions at six months, and that adds to the worry. What do you do when you're in times in life where you're like, I, I can't control this stuff? You cry out to God. You ask God to help you. And what does he do? He upholds you. That's the next promise, right? The fifth promise. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He upholds us. Why? Because he is righteous. He wants what is best for us. Now, I hate that I always have to clarify that, but I do. He wants what is best for us. He knows what is best for us, and that is what he wants for us. Sometimes we don't know what is best for us and want the things, but God knows what is best for us, and he wants to uphold us. Paul sums it up in Romans. You know the verse, right? He says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So you can ask me, okay, William, April 2015, it was so bad. How did God help you? How did God uphold you? I'm glad you asked. Spoiler alert, I survived. I'm here. And my daughter, the pregnancy went along just fine. She's here, right? But what did God do? Well, the first thing he did 
was I'm in charge actually at our hospital of scheduling the doctors that come out. And I do this months ahead of time, the volunteer physicians. And we had a volunteer physician from Georgia who was scheduled to come in April 2015. And he came. And guess what? He was a specialist in tropical infectious disease and especially in typhoid. So I had the guy who was the expert in the disease that was killing me show up and give me personal care and nurse me back to health. How's that for God upholding you? I couldn't have seen that coming. Heidi, with all the stress of all this stuff, she let people in the States know what was going on. This church, you guys prayed for us. Churches prayed for us. Our friends and family, we got encouraging emails. God's Holy Spirit was such a comfort to us during that time. And her stress and anxiety went down, and the contraction stopped, and the pregnancy was fine for another three months, right? And then how did God work together for good in all this? Okay, yeah, okay, I was sick and he, he healed me. That's great. But how did he actually work good out of this? Well, here's what he did. When I was at my lowest point and our family couldn't hardly do anything for ourselves, God moved the local body of believers, the Ghanaian Christians in our community. They hadn't known us that long. Pastors came regularly to pray over me. Women brought food that they had prepared to feed my family. And the relationships that we created during that trial were critical for the next four years of our ministry. God had a plan in all of that because we bonded with the people in that community in a way that we never could have without that difficult trial where we had to be humbled and look to them for support. It was amazing. So this last promise, this promise of God upholding you with his righteous right hand, it destroys our fear of the unknown. Because if you're a believer... And if you're fulfilling God's will for your life, his call on you, the unique purpose he's called you for, if that's the case, you have nothing to fear because he's going to work through these trials to bring glory to himself but also to benefit you in the eternal long run. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He's with you. He is your God. Now let's, let's circle back to the Karamajong. I introduced you briefly to the Karamajong of northern Uganda um, at the beginning, but let's circle back to them. So the Karamajong I mentioned... They're a warrior people, and they actually have a long, violent history of within the tribe, different clans will attack each other and do cattle raids. They come in the night, they set the huts on fire, cause chaos, and they steal the livestock. And so because of centuries of that, every Karamajong Manyata, or village, every little community, they build a wall around the whole community. And it's made out of tall branches that they cut, and they plant them in the ground, and they make this impenetrable wall. They put thorns in it so that no one can get in. The only way into a family's living area is through a small gate. It's not easy to get in or out. Now, I've got a picture to show you what it looks like when you go through that. They actually have it so that they can barricade it, so that at night they can close this up and no one comes in or out. And it's extreme. You've got to get down on all fours and you've got to crawl to get inside. And this is such a metaphor for a life lived in fear. Because they, they have to isolate themselves and cut themselves off for fear that at any moment someone could attack them. And that fear has, has found its way into their architecture, right? And a life with fear is, is not a pleasant thing. And if you remember at the very beginning, we looked at who this passage was for, these promises and this command to fear not. It was for Israel, right? For the offspring of Abraham. And Paul said, if you're in Christ, you're the offspring of Abraham, so fear not and rely on these five promises. But the flip side of that means if you are not in Christ, these promises don't apply to you. And the command to fear not is actually no. For you, if you are not in Christ, it's be afraid, be fearful, 
because that righteous right hand is not upholding you. In fact, the, the Hebrew for that word righteous in the verse, righteous right hand, can also be translated as salvation, so hand of salvation. And that's the beauty of our faith, is that the story doesn't end there, right? We believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why your missionaries are there with the Karamajong, to bring the good news. Because the good news is that that righteous right hand, that hand of salvation, is reaching out and offering the eternal gift of life to anyone who will accept it. Anyone who will call on the Father, repent of their sins, put their faith in Him and the work that Christ did on the cross. Because as soon as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can immediately fear not. You immediately have God with you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And He is your God. And then He begins to strengthen you and to help you and to uphold you with His righteous right hand. Now, obviously, I can't preach this message and come across with the idea that if you're a Christian, fear is gone, right? Well, no, that's the whole point of this verse because he says, fear not 120 times to his people. So obviously, fear is an issue that we struggle with as believers, as God's people. It's something that comes up. And maybe you yourself in your own life have built up some thorny walls around you out of fear. And those things are keeping you back from accomplishing the things that God wants to do with you to advance his kingdom. And it's difficult to overcome fear when it has us, when you, when you hear those rats inches from your face, right? It's difficult to overcome fear. But the psalmist tells us very clearly what to do. In Psalm 55, he says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Make that your prayer today. Lord, I cast it on you. Please sustain me. Sometimes it can be helpful to, to actually write down, physically write down your fears. Write down these things for the Lord and put them in his hands. John Piper, he doesn't call these the five promises in Isaiah 41.10. Piper, when he's preached on this passage, he calls them the pillars. These are the pillars of fearlessness. Because you can put your fear on the Lord and you can lean on these promises. Don't be afraid of losing a relationship. He is with you. Don't be afraid of failing. Let God be your strength. He will help you. Don't be afraid of the unknown, of the future. Offer it up to him in prayer and seek his will for your life because he will uphold you with his righteous right hand. Fear not.